we're looking at Galatians, it's, it's quite a long passage and um, we won't get to look at everything, but I encourage you to sort of have a look at it yourselves as I'm sure you are. Um, but I wonder, I think everyone on the call is an adult. Um, and so I wonder if your adult life has met your expectations. I wonder if um, you, when you were a kid, what you thought your adult life would be or being an adult would be, would be what it's turned out to be. And I don't mean in like the necessarily the big things, but I think sometimes as kids, we imagine being a grown up is the best thing in the world. You'll be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want and all of those sort of things. And I think we can admit that that's probably not true, but we often maybe even want to go back to being a kid where there's less hassle, less stress, perhaps. Um, maybe you feel that way, maybe you don't. But regardless, I think it's clear to all of us that we look at life differently when we're adults as to when we're children. We see things from different perspectives. We have to live in different ways. We have more responsibilities. And uh, you might have seen some of these sort of pictures before, but I wonder if you can relate to some of these sort of comic strips about what the differences are in life between being a kid and being um, an adult. Um, so sleeping, um, so as a kid, not wanting to go to bed, but obviously as an adult, maybe always wanting to be in bed. When it comes to cooking and how we feel about cooking. Shopping, maybe not much changes, depends on how much you're into clothes shopping. I'm definitely like the guy on the right there still, um, for sure. Uh, cleaning, I don't know many people that love cleaning, but obviously we look at cleaning very differently as adults perhaps as to what we do as kids, or hopefully we do. Um, maybe one positive is, you know, people, we like to clean ourselves a bit more perhaps, and it's uh, easier to get um, young adults maybe to, to wash themselves than kids. I wouldn't know, but I can imagine. Um, or how we deal with social interactions and how much we want to see our friends or how little we want to see our friends. Maybe different with COVID, but um, perhaps um, we regret some of the things we sign up to during the week sometimes. Uh, food, maybe you have to count the calories a bit more than you used to. Um, maybe not. Uh, what we think of teachers, perhaps especially in the last year. Um, so kids probably not super fans of teachers, but um, parents hopefully, especially after COVID, much more grateful um, of teachers and what they have to deal with. I think this one captures the, the vibe I'm sort of going for. You know, kids can't wait to grow up perhaps and adults can't wait to be kids again. Um, but whatever you feel about being a kid, I think, we, as I said, we look at things differently and there's a, a marked change. Um, and today, as we carry on looking at Galatians, as we look at the passages that, that Maggie read for us, we're going to look at how Paul tells us that we've grown up, but we've actually grown up to just become children, uh, which might seem sort of counterintuitive, but that's what we're going to look at today. So just to quickly recap where we've been, you can go back and listen to the sermons that are on um, YouTube, so you can go back and listen to them if you missed them, but we've looked at how Paul is saying that the true gospel, the one that Jesus gave to him and the other apostles, is one that only through faith in him, through his life, his death and resurrection, that's the only way we can become right with God. There's nothing else we can bring to the table, nothing we can do, and in fact there's nothing we need to do, nothing needs to be added to it. Fraser, I think in the first sermon, called it Jesus plus. To add anything makes it Jesus plus. And so for the Galatians, specifically the issue was circumcision, but for us it could be lots of different things today. But regardless of what it might be, there's nothing that can be added, nothing that needs to be added. Only faith in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, all that, that's all that's required to be right with God. And you can see this slide is similar to what Stephen had up last time. So 
the question is if Jesus is all we need, then where does the law fit in? Where does the Old Testament generally, but really specifically the laws and the commands that God gave the Israelites back in the Old Testament, where does that fit in? Do we ignore it? Can we throw it out? Is that what Paul's saying? Because the Galatians would have probably been asking this question as they heard this letter read out to them the first time they ever heard it. The way he's built his argument, people will be saying, all right, well, what do we do now? Partly because they were probably confused and concerned. There's apparently 613 laws in the Old Testament. Um, and so the question is, do we have to follow any of them, all of them, some portion of them? How do we know which ones to follow or which ones to apply today? But also some people might have used this against Paul to say he was disregarding everything that had gone before and was sort of trampling on it. And Paul isn't saying that at all. But we might have a similar question. How do we relate to the laws in the Old Testament? Which ones should we completely ignore? Is there any we should follow? What do we do with the Ten Commandments? All of those sort of things. And it's a, a sensible question to have and one we probably should have if we actually think about it. And Paul knows that. And so that's why, as in the passage we've just read, he goes ahead and answers it because he knows that that's the question they're about to voice. So last week, as you can see from that slide, Stephen kind of explained Paul's argument about why going back to the law is a dead end. So as Gladys has mentioned a couple of times, he talks about how we should remember that it was through the spirit, that they, sorry, through, they received the spirit through faith, not through works. And so why going back to works makes any sense? Who knows? The answer is it doesn't. That the promise to Abraham was made before the law. And so then the law can't have had anything to do with being saved. It must have some other purpose. And then the Judaizers, they were saying you needed to add works to the to the faith so that you could be saved but as you can see from that first line and Stephen had this as well there's a full stop and it's an important full stop faith through Christ is all that you need for right standing with God and then the works come after that through the spirit so if the law isn't there for salvation if it's not there to save us in any way to help us get right with God then it must be there for some other reason and Paul says, if you have a look at verse 19 of chapter three, I'd encourage you to have it open if you don't, but don't worry if you don't, you can take my word for it and check up with me afterwards. He says that it's for transgressions that the law was given. And so that's not really a clear and obvious answer, but thankfully he goes on to give three images, three metaphors of what he's trying to say by saying that the law was given for transgressions. So we're gonna have a look at these three images um, together. So the first one is in verse 23. Paul says that we've been prisoners to the law. Now, I've never been in prison. You'll be glad to hear. And, uh, but being a prisoner means you don't have much freedom, uh, that you're not free to do what you want to do, where you want to go. We probably watch many TV shows involving it. Um, and they, they can't do what they want. Their time is all segmented for them. They do whatever they're told. They have no control or freedom in their own life. And sometimes that's for the good of society. People are put in prison to protect us from them. Sometimes it's for their own good as well. They're put in um, maybe to protect themselves from, from other things, maybe think more like witness protection perhaps rather than prison. But either way, being locked up restricts freedom. And so when this comes to the law, what Paul is saying is that the law was put there to help restrict and curb the dark side of all of us as humans, uh, to keep Israel, the people of God in check. So the law is there in part to restrict the sins and the transgressions, and that's what he's saying, because we all have, I think we'll all admit, we have a side of us that tends towards selfishness, to being bad to people, being bad to ourselves, whatever it might be. 
and the law is there for individuals and for the group to help them not go down the paths that they might go down if left unchecked. But the good news is that we have now been set free, as you can kind of see from the picture there, because the prison sentence was only temporary, as was the time of the law, and that's what Paul's saying. And we're no longer in that time anymore. The Galatians weren't and we're still not because Jesus paid that price. So the Lord doesn't hold us because Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to transform us instead. So to go back to the law would be like going back into prison, which again, haven't been in prison, but I assume is not top of most people's agenda when they get out of jail. So we've been set free from the law and now Jesus is all we need. So that's the first image of what the law was there for. It was there to restrict and curb our sinful natures. The second one is that we are no longer children anymore. We've graduated. Um, I don't know if you've ever graduated. It didn't look quite like this when I graduated, but it's a nice image um, anyway. And so this is in verse 24. He shifts the metaphor a bit to say that the law was like a guardian or a teacher. Um, and so the Greek word here is padagogos. That's the only Greek word I'll say today. Um, I think I've said it kind of okay. Um, and it was kind of like a slave that looked after children on their parents' behalf. And so I was trying to think of a modern day example, and I guess like an au pair or a nanny perhaps might be something equivalent. So they would take them to school, for example, they would look after them on behalf of their parents. And so just like a teacher or a parent or some sort of guardian, their law is there to help educate us. So I guess as parents, or if you're involved in teaching anyway, you're hoping to educate people, not so they continually have to learn from you, but so that they can go and live as adults and make the right decisions, make wise decisions, whatever it might be. And so the law is there for that too. If we listen to what God is trying to say through the law, then we realize that actually the law points to something beyond itself. So the law points to a bigger reality, which goes beyond us and be goes beyond the law. Because just like it's there to curb the bad things that we do, it's also there to show us how bad we really are. Because we all have a sinful nature. The Bible is pretty clear on that. And so if we try and keep the law, and you can see in the Old Testament stories after stories of people trying to keep the law, everyone falls short. They realize that they need something else. And that's what lots of the prophets are saying. There's more to come. There's something needs to be done. The law isn't working in the way it was hoped for in some ways, perhaps by the people. But God knew that the law wasn't going to be enough. It's there to point beyond itself for the need of the whole world for some sort of savior. But again, we're not in that time anymore. The law was only there to lead us to Jesus. And so now he's come, we've graduated. Whether you've graduated or not in real life, you've graduated as far as it is in your faith. So the law isn't there to hold our hand anymore. Jesus does that instead through his Holy Spirit. So it's there to restrict and it's there to show us how sinful we are and how much we need Jesus. And then so in a similar sort of way at the beginning of chapter four, Paul then says the law is like a, a guardian or a trustee. Now, I don't have a trustee account, you know, I, but you see in TV shows that the, the rich kids that have, they know they're getting an inheritance, but they're not allowed to take it yet. Um, or think of royalty, people that weren't able to become king or queen because they were too young, whatever it might be. And so in the same way, a child will not inherit the land until they come of age. But again, it's temporary because they are going to grow up. And so at some point, the family business or the land or the money or whatever it is, is going to be handed over to the child. And the good news is that Paul says we have grown up. We've come into the inheritance already. And so to go back to the law would be to return the gift we've been given, which was Jesus's death, 
But even more than that, it would be to return it and then assume we can somehow earn it instead. Um, so it's not even just to reject it, it's to reject it, wanting it still, but then trying to achieve it ourselves, even though it's already been given. And then all of this leads to what I think is the best news about our relationship with the law. So we've got that it curbs our dark side, our, our sinful natures. It shows us how much we need it. And it shows us also that we're going to get inheritance because with Jesus coming, we started a new time. We're not in the age of the law anymore. We've been freed. We've graduated. We've grown up. But Paul says that we haven't just been set free from the law. He says we've been set free for something else. So we have been rescued from our sins, which is really good news and something we should always remember and be thankful for. But we've also been made heirs. We've been made children of God. We've been adopted into the family. So we haven't just been released from prison. We've also been given a place at the top table. Now, the idea of adoption and like becoming children of God is like a massive one throughout the Bible that, you know, you could do a whole sermon series on. But I just want to lean into that one sort of reality of it that we've been freed for something because i think often as christians and i say this to myself but maybe it's true for you as well i think we can sometimes still live as children even though we've been told by jesus by paul to grow up and what i mean by that is that sometimes when we first become christians or maybe when we have a really difficult time or a convicting time in our lives we realize how much we need jesus we realize how messed up we are we need a savior and so then we, we turn to Jesus, we're grateful, we're thankful for what he's done. And that should be our way every day. There's, you know, we shouldn't ever put that aside because we need that. We need Jesus. And the law shows us that. The law shows us we need Jesus. But then I think that we go through a period perhaps where we try and clean up our lives. So whether that's initially when we become Christians or over and over again, we realize that there's sin and dirt and mess in our lives and we seek to live more like we know God wants us to do. And again, we see what that means by looking at Jesus and by looking at the law. And so that's a good thing as well. Uh, it's called sanctification. And if it's done prayerfully and acknowledging that we can't do on our own, that we need God and we need others around us, then that's a really good thing. But then at some, time, some point, I think a switch is flipped for people. I think that what happens is not overnight, not consciously, maybe more like a dimmer switch than a, a on-off switch. We realize that our sins have still been paid. We'd acknowledge that in our heads, but then we suddenly think we need to tick boxes to earn God's favor. We think that he will feel bad about us or we'll feel guilt. We feel guilty if we miss a Bible reading, if we miss church, if we do something that we think God doesn't approve of. We kind of start living like we still in need of saving again. We go backwards again. And I, I do think that's like a half-life. I think that's not what we're called to live like because we haven't just been saved from our sins. We've been saved into the family of God. And there's nothing we can do to change that. God loves us no matter what. And I think as we'll look in Galatians 5, no idea who's doing that, but they may touch on this. Living as these grown-up children, living as people that don't need to follow the law out of some sort of ticking boxes but it doesn't mean we can go around and do whatever we want um just like for those of you that have grown up children or children at all probably don't want them just to when they're 18 to go off and live lives however they feel like it you hope that they live in some way based on how you in the metaphor being the law have shown them how to live 
because Jesus and Paul sum up the law by saying, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And as Christians today, that I think should be our law. Uh, but the law in the Old Testament, they can show us what it actually means to love God and love our neighbor, as can looking at the life of Jesus as well. Probably not in specifics, again, when it comes to the law, but in the principles that underline them. And I, I think, and we don't have time to look at it in any detail, so you can look at it yourselves, perhaps. I think we see Jesus do this a little bit himself in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, where these verses are from. So he, for example, takes commands from the Old Testament, like do not murder, do not commit adultery. And he shows that actually there's a, a deeper principle underneath those that goes deeper and wider than just not killing someone. And so that if you prevent yourself from killing someone, well done, you're fine. He talks about how it's to do with anger, to do with lust. And so Jesus takes these Old Testament laws, and there's another example there on the screen, famous one, eye for an eye. And so he looks at it and says, actually, there's an underlying principle. So if you look at the verses and the sections where this verse is mentioned, and you'll find them in your footnotes on the Bible, if you have the Bible app, um, we can see that it wasn't there to allow, you know, retribution that if someone takes my eye, I can take their eye. It was actually to limit that as much as possible so that people didn't go after justice themselves like some sort of Batman vigilante type character. And so Jesus fulfills that on the cross by not seeking revenge or retribution on those who put him there. But then he also goes on to say that actually what it really means is that we should be willing to suffer for him. And I, an eye for an eye, but he also says then turn the other cheek, as you can see there on the screen, be willing to go the extra mile. And so searching for those principles that go under the law perhaps isn't easy. I think it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, wisdom. It means knowing more about God. And so that involves reading the Bible more, praying more. It shouldn't be done on our own as well. I think that's what church community is for. But I think that's what it means to, to live it life as a Christian, is to look at what the principles are in the Old and the New Testament and see what that means for our lives today. Um, and we don't have time to do that in, in depth, otherwise it would become like a lecture or something, and I don't want to do that, and I don't think you want me to do that either. But I think that's what it means to call, be called to live as Christians, is to do that together, to do that with God. And so we have been set free from the law, and we can instead seek to find those principles in the law about what it means to love God and to love our neighbor, because Jesus fulfilled the law to set us free. And so to go back to the law, to aim to keep it to show how great we are would be foolish and instead just show us how much we need something more anyway. And it would be rejecting the gift we've been given. Um, it would be rejecting our adoption as children of God. And I think this is something that we need to remind ourselves over and over again. I don't think this is a one-time thing where we realize this is all true and take everything and have it set in our head. I think we always drift to thinking we need to do things to earn God's favor. And I want to read a quick story to end. Um, it's from a textbook of a course that's called Sonship, quite appropriately, um, that's run by a, a missionary organization. And this is basically someone's reflection while they were doing the course itself um, on a particular sort of talk that was given about how they have this dynamic messed up in their heads. Um, and so what I'd love you to do is picture it as, as I'm reading. It's quite, it's quite a nice story, I think, in the way it's written. But think about how it might apply to you um what areas of life do we seek to earn god's favor rather than accepting this amazing truth that we need nothing other than faith in jesus that jesus has given us all we have so i'm going to read this out um and then i'll close in prayer 
So this is called my father's shirt. One day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter. I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline, it was too high, but I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was and I was rather joyfully clothespinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. I hadn't realized the impact the event and others like it had on me. However, as I was repeatedly convicted during the course for not believing God concerning his delight in me and in the gracious nature of my relationship with him, this memory returned to me. Now you can hardly get through this course without realizing that our own hearts are as murderous as anyone else's. So I wasn't really focusing on being the innocent victim of my father's anger. But as I remember the scenes from my past, I saw that through the years I have not been believing that my father in heaven was any different from my earthly father. I had not been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel, that by faith in Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, he now loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. So the next morning I told the counselor that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory and said that I guess if the father is in God, saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on, he would forget the shirt and hug me. The counselor said, you still don't understand though. God wouldn't overlook the shirt, but he would take it, put it on and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you all about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed with that realization. I'm beginning to realize that my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung up right. God would answer my prayer if it was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. And since I knew how I failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up on the line and tried to get away when God came home, so to speak. Someone on the course said something that seems to apply here. He said, God will not despise the tainted love gifts of the sinner who looks to Jesus. My entire Christian life had been oppressive. I don't know how, I did not know how to live day by day without an overwhelming sense of failure to perform up to what I thought God had demanded. With that came a sense of God being disappointed and even disgusted in me. How overpowering it is now to realize that because of Christ, I can experience a daily freedom to move out into people's lives. I can love others. I can obey God with my heart because I don't fear that he will be furious with me if I get the shirt a bit rusty. There is a freedom to love that I have not known since the moments before my father got home that day long ago. I've been thinking of the rusty shirt in the parable of the talents. The two servants who loved their master and trusted in his goodwill served him energetically. They were not driven, but the very fact that they believed him to be what he was, faithful and generous, moved them to use their talents to the best of the ability. It was, however, the legalist, the one who viewed the master as a hard man who hid his talent. My unbelief had led me to talent burying. It is the fact that my father delights even in rusty shirts that moves this most flinty heart of mine to desire, to really desire a life, disciplined to seek him and find him, and by his power at work in me to live a life of faith expressing itself in love. <laughs>